Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Institute for Policy Innovation podcast. We're coming to you today from the studios of Salem Media Group in Dallas, Texas. I'm Tom Giovanetti, the president of the Institute for Policy Innovation. Today is February 15th, 2024, and I'm joined today, as usual, by IPI's resident scholar, Dr. Merrill Matthews. And today we're going to be talking about a recent piece that Dr. Matthews wrote, You Better Sit Down, CBO's 10-Year Budget Deficit Projection. So, Dr. Matthews, uh, even people who are even people who don't pay close attention to this stuff, I'm sure are aware of the fact that budget deficits have become a permanent feature, mm-hmm. not a temporary blip uh, in American politics. But this is really becoming a chronic problem, isn't it? It is. And, and the Congressional Budget Office, the, the, the CBO, came out with a little bit of okay, good let's back news. Up, let's back up a second. We talked about this in our preparation that we want to explain to people what CBO is. Mm-hmm. So the Congressional Budget Office, I mean, these are bureaucrats, right? right? These are appointed and hired people. Essentially nonpartisan. They're, non-part- they're supposed to be nonpartisan. They're the official people who do the official projections. Right. So when Congress is debating a budget, when they're talking about a spending program or something like that, they ask CBO to score it. Right. And scoring means give us an estimate. What is this going to do? What are the fiscal implications? Is this going to result in more federal revenue? Mm-hmm. Is it going to re- result in less federal revenue? Right. And what they'll do is they will project, if it's a new, uh, uh, let's say a new tax, mm-hmm. they'll project the kind of income they expect that tax to produce. Right. And then... Um, so that and how that then will affect the budget, or yeah. if it's a new spending project, they will say we expect this spending to look like this, and of course they do it over a ten-year time frame. They're required so, to do it over ten ten-year time frame because of the Budget Act, and and that forces a lot of bills to look at sort of the ten-year uh, aspect of right. it. So, for instance, when they passed the Affordable Care Act, i.e., Obamacare, mm-hmm. they were looking at uh, I think. Uh, Barack Obama said, keep it under a trillion dollars, if I remember right, the cost of the program. And so they, when they did their initial assumption, they said, uh-oh, it cost a, cost a whole lot more yeah, than that. Yeah. So what they did was they started the taxes, the new taxes in that in the first year, but they didn't start the benefits until four years out. But, but CBO generates the data. Right. And then the politicians torture the data. <laughs> or they'll right? come, or to they'll make come, it fit what they right. needed to, to do. They'll come back and say, well, we'll, we'll change the, the, our proposed legislation to do this in order to, and then they'll contact CBO to try to get those adjustments. Yeah, what would happen if we tweaked it this right. way and tweaked it that way? Some way to get it something that sounds favorable to them when they want yeah. to try to promote it. we this. don't always agree with CBO's projections. I think in we fact, almost never agree in fact, with CBO. In fact, we at the Institute for Policy Innovation have a history of, uh, arguing that dynamic scoring, mm-hmm. which means taking into effect the economic growth-related aspects of tax cuts and reducing federal spending, mm-hmm. needs to be taken into account. And so we have frequently been critical of, of the fact that CBO does not take that into account to the degree that we think they should. Nonetheless, CBO is considered the gold standard, right or wrong. Right. And so if you know if a politician is going to argue my bill would lower the deficit or if 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 a politician's opponent is going to argue that his bill would increase the deficit, 
they're almost always going to rely on CBO numbers. Right. And we we should mention that CBO goes by what the current law is, or if they're doing a projection of yeah, a new law. But right. they go, they, they can't just say, well, this we is called think the baseline, this, yeah. right? They, the CBO has a baseline. Mm-hmm that they project based on existing law. And they say, here's what's under existing law, unless someone makes a change to it. This is what we project to happen over over 10 years. Right. And that's important based upon what we're going to talk about, Mm -hmm. because the CBO projection for 2024, and let's mention the fiscal year begins in October and goes through September. So the fiscal year 2024, their projection right now... And that, by the way, is the reason that... If you follow political news, people start talking about government shutdowns mm-hmm. around the middle of September, yeah. <laughs> right? Because the, the the government's fiscal year actually ends on September 30th. Right. So their projection for 2024 is $1.6 trillion, which they point out is actually lower than it was. The, the deficit. The, the deficit, annual the deficit. Fe- single annual year deficit. deficit. Yeah. Okay. Is, is lower than it was for 2023. So when I went and looked at what the deficit for 2023 was, the projection was $1.7 trillion. So so we've dropped $100 million. And so they kind of look at it, well, it's actually going in the right direction. Except, except even though the projection for 2023 was $1.7 trillion, it turned out to be $2 trillion because... Uh, Joe Biden had he, he he wasn't able to do all the student loan forgiveness and other things, but he did some other things that were not in the projections at the time. So they actually spent two trillion. Now, in one sense, that makes it look like dropping to one point six trillion is a bigger drop. So maybe we're better off. But Congress is looking at some more spending out there. Mm-hmm. But what I want to mention is they they go on with this deficit to, to move out for 10 years. As I as we were talking about, they do these things over a 10 year time. So they say for um, uh, uh, 2024, 1.6 trillion, uh, a little lower than it was last year. They say it goes up to 1.7 trillion next year, I believe it is, uh, or 1.8 trillion in 2025, and then it drops down to 1.6 trillion in 2026. So we're looking at roughly level federal deficits for the next three few years, and then it says it begins steadily increasing to the federal deficit to 2.6 trillion by 2034. So they're estimating that the federal deficit in 2034 given current law is going to be 2.6 trillion dollars. So I said, "All right, well just how how much does that if how, how much does that add up to?" So right now, go into um, uh, the uh, nationaldebt.com website, mm-hmm. you find that our current debt is 34.2 trillion dollars. And I took that issue of essentially $1.6, $1.7 trillion, and I I basically bumped it up. Since we're looking over 10 years, $100 million a year, and that gets you up to nearly the uh, $2.6 trillion. I jump up to $2.6. So it's an estimate. But I come up, it looks like we'd be adding another $21.5 trillion, $21.5 trillion in the next 10 years. That's a 63% increase in that... uh, uh, in the total federal debt in 10 years. Now, these numbers, um, you know, there is there is this problem of large numbers, right? 
Yeah. Which is, you know, the the bigger the numbers get, it's like the the it, it gets beyond human comprehension, yeah. right? And people start joking about, did you say billion or trillion? You know, it almost doesn't matter because it's 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 unimaginably big. And there's a there's a, a, a sort of a similar quote by Stalin, I believe, which is one death is a catastrophe, a million deaths is is a statistic. Yeah, exactly. You, yeah, because it's just too big for you to comprehend, right? right? Um, when you and I first started working in the policy world, and I don't mean to be dating us, um, you know, 1.7 trillion, 1.9 trillion, that was like the total size of the federal budget. Oh, yeah. And now that is simply the, the portion of the federal budget that is that is not covered. Right. That's the overspending number. But it wasn't that long ago that that was the total size of the federal budget. Right. And we used to, you know, Reagan used to get hammered for budget deficits in the millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. And we have soared past millions, past, past billions, billions, to trillions. To trillions of dollars. Okay. Yes. Um, and, and it's interesting because, again, I, we don't like to take anything for granted on this podcast because, you know, our goal is to try to explain these things in a way that's very easily accessible to our listeners. Uh, when we talk about a $1.7 or $1.9 or $2.3 trillion deficit or whatever— uh, that gets added to the national debt right. every single year. Right. So if you've got a $37 trillion national debt, and this year you have a $2 trillion... $34 trillion right now. $34 trillion. And if you have a $2 21. trillion dollar deficit, mm-hmm. that adds $2 trillion to the debt. Right. So what I did was I took the current uh, federal debt, $34.2 trillion, Added the uh, roughly uh, the the ten year estimate if I if I added it up right about twenty one point five trillion more mm. and that gets us to in ten years a total federal debt of fifty five point seven trillion dollars <laughs> and that's not even counting the unfunded liabilities. Oh, this, this is so important. This is so important. I mean, we published uh, IPI published a study many many years ago uh, by Bruce Bartlett back before he went insane. <laughs> and Bruce made this point that that when we talk about these numbers, the the public debt numbers, mm-hmm. those numbers do not include these liabilities you're getting ready to talk about, right? Because these, these entitlement entitlement commitments. We essentially. have promises out there in Social Security and Medicare, and we the way the funding is set up right now, they're going to not be able, the trust funds are not going to be able to cover in Social Security by about 2034. So there will be a uh, a reduction in the amount that's uh, that's delivered. But mm-hmm. it um, the unfunded liabilities, the money that we protect, that we project that the government owes that is not going to be covered by money coming in from Social Security or right. the taxes or Medicare taxes is in the, if you put them together, it's a hundred trillion dollars. Yeah, it, it, they're, they're not small numbers. They're huge numbers. Right. And, and let's be clear about what, what we mean by an unfunded liability. These are commitments that are entitlement programs, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security retirement, Social Security disability. Mm-hmm. These are commitments they've made that are currently scheduled. Right. Now, Congress can always scale them back. They can. But these are these are the commitments that are currently scheduled in law, going back to this idea of the baseline. Now right? it's a ways out. Well, this is looking at something like a seventy-five year timeline. Mm. So it's a long ways out, and a lot can happen between now right. and then. So you'll see you'll see people talking about how like so and so entitlement program is going to go into 
deficit in 2034 or mm-hmm. something like that. Does it, that doesn't mean no money's coming in. Right. That just means more money's going out than it is coming in. Right. Now, you've done, a just as a sideline, let's not spend too much time on this, but just as a sideline, you've done some work on this issue as well, which is that when the entitlements are in surplus, the government essentially takes that money and spends it. Right. Right. And, and most years they have been in surplus. Right. And so the government takes whatever's over. So if Social Security money comes in from our taxes, our FICA payroll taxes, mm-hmm. uh, if there's a surplus in that, the government po- borrows that money and puts an IOU into the uh, government. And it's called a uh, it's a non-negotiable IOU. And so you can't actually the, you can't take it like some debt, like a credit or um, like a, a bond or something. You can't go out and sell it. It's not negotiable. Not negotiable. Right. So uh, the government owes that money. And so uh, arguably, when you talk about Social Security trust fund running out of money in 2034, I would say it's actually already run out of money because you're having to. Um, because there is because there is no trust fund. There is no trust yeah, fund. Yeah, we yeah, borrowed yeah. all that money. Right. Right. So in order for us to draw on the trust fund money, we have to go and pull money from general revenue somewhere, put it in the trust fund, yeah. and then take it out of the so, trust but fund. This is, correct me if I'm wrong, but my, my point here is that while more money is coming into the entitlements than is going out, you essentially have kind of a double counting thing going on on the positive side. But when, when more money is going out of entitlements than is coming in, all of a sudden you find yourself in like a double counting situation on the negative side. Right. Because... The the general federal budget is accustomed to having ac- access to that money. Right. So it's not just that the entitlements are in deficit. Right. It's that the federal government can't use that money for other spending. So if it's like a, it's like a it's like a twofer. It's like a it's like a uh, double whammy. It, so if, for instance, this year, if there was if Social Security was paying collected a hundred million dollars more than it actually paid out. The federal government would borrow that money, mm-hmm. put an IOU, and then those uh, that the federal the current federal deficit would look a hundred million dollars less than it otherwise would, right? Because it's taken the money out of there and used it. Okay, so this matters right now, but it also matters long term. Right. So it matters right now because uh, Congress is actually debating further spending. Yes, yeah, so the the Senate has passed a ninety five billion dollar bill to uh, help. Uh, Ukraine, um, Israel, and Taiwan, maybe a little other some other things in there, but mm-hmm. basically it's $95 billion. Yeah. It's a huge amount of money. And if you go with that, you're already up to, uh, I mean, you're, you're basically. Right. That's in addition yeah. to, yeah. So there's always this issue that comes up where you'll have some members of Congress who are like fiscal hawks, or you'll have some outside observers who will say, this is not revenue neutral. What's being proposed is not revenue neutral. Right. And what they mean is you're proposing an additional $95 billion in spending, mm-hmm. but you're not taking it from somewhere else. You're right. not reducing spending somewhere else by $95 billion. It's So this addition. is just all in addition. Right. Right. And so there, it is essentially conservative to say that additional spending should be revenue neutral. Uh, you know, maybe as opposed to an emergency, right? right? The problem is these days everything seems they, everything's they an, emergency, everything an emergency, right? right. <laughs> everything is declared an emergency. And of course, on the on the uh, government budget, they had they had postponed it. They had passed legislation back in January, I think, to mo- to postpone some of the decisions until March. So they're getting ready to have to start discussing how much more money we're right. going to be spending. So, which is 
this is the kicking the can down the road, right. which is the single skill that Congress seems to possess, is the ability to continually kick the can down the road, yep. right? So let's, let, let's transition this idea of kicking the can down the road. Let's talk about why any of this matters, okay? Um, n- sort of narrowly, when we were talking about entitlements running out of money, that matters because, of course, these benefits have been promised to people, and the government's not going to be able to pay them mm-hmm. unless it comes up with other sources of money, right? Other borrowing, borrowing yeah. higher taxes, whatever. But in general, and, and this, we don't want to go down this. Uh, we don't want to go down this tangent about modern monetary theory. We actually have done a policy basics podcast on the idea of modern monetary theory. But the question becomes: Why does any of this matter? Why does it matter why why the U.S. federal government has a why does it matter whether the federal government has a five billion dollar deficit or a forty trillion dollar so, deficit? So a couple of things. Number one, when the government goes and sells that debt, it's taking money out of capital markets. It is, and because they're selling so much debt these days, mm-hmm. it can push the interest rate up. So the government, in selling its bonds is competing with private sector bonds. Right, right. private sector bonds, okay. right. Okay, all right. And okay. so it's it's taking money out of the private market. Okay. Um, and it's it's considered safe bets because the government's always been able to pay this its is the debt. full faith and credit thing. Full faith and right? credit yeah. of the federal government. Right. So if you're, even if you're a sovereign fund of another country, your, your money from another country, uh, not necessarily private, but the government money, you may want to put your money here because it's considered safe right. and you're going to get some interest rate. But because you've got so much money out there that you need, it pushes interest rates up as the government has to keep raising the interest rates in order to draw more money in. To, maybe, to, to lure people into buying the debt. Right. Maybe I, as a company or as a country or as an individual, I only want 10% of my assets in, in government debt. Right. And so, but you've got to sell. It needs to sell more so if than you, that. So if you're an investor, mm-hmm. again, whether you're an individual vet, investor business investor, or as you say, like a sovereign wealth fund or whatever, you're looking at the bond market and you're saying, you know, I could buy, uh, I could buy Apple bonds mm-hmm. for 4%. Uh, and Apple seems like a pretty solid company, right? So you've literally got the federal government dangling its bonds out there. So no, 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 We want you to buy federal, U.S. federal treasury. Right. Now we won't pay as much as Apple. We'll pay 3.8% because we have the full faith and credit, right? But of course, this idea of full faith and credit is a relative concept, not an absolute concept, mm-hmm. because you don't really know for absolute certainty that the U.S. government is not going to fail to pay its debt. But the point is that there is competition in the mar- in the debt market, right. that the U.S. government has to compete against all other debt issuers. And the dicier things get, the higher rates of interest the U.S. Treasury has to offer to get you to buy the debt. Exactly. Okay. Now, when when it offers that higher rate of interest, that tends to make the stock market go down because, it, as investors are saying, do I want to put money in stock or do I want to put money in these interest Because it's rates? luring money to it's, the bond market rather than to the stock market. Exactly. Yeah, so okay. that, that forces the stock market down typically. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, that means that companies have a lower valuation and it makes it harder for them in some cases to go out and borrow money themselves because they've got that lower valuation. Okay. So there's there's a, a number of sort of ripple effects from so this. So your your first point about why does any of this matter is that it it has an effect on the private sector bond market as a whole. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
What's another reason why this matters? Once those interest rates go up, then the federal government has a highest higher interest debt. Yeah, and rate. this is the biggie, right? This is the biggie because <laughs> we're I, if we're not there, we're almost there where the federal government is spending more on interest than I think it is on the Department of Defense. Yeah. So, so if if you know, it's not entirely appropriate to use household analogies to think about the federal government. Mm-hmm. And and again, this is something IPI has written on in the past. The government is different than a household uh, because because countries don't die and individuals die. And so, you know, when an individual dies, their debts have to be settled. The estate has to be settled, all that kind of stuff. Whereas in theory, at least, a government can just continue to roll its debt almost indefinitely. So it's not a perfect like apples to apples comparison. Uh, but there th- there is a sense in which... Imagine what your life would be like as a household if your credit card debt was the biggest line item in your family budget, mm-hmm. bigger than your mortgage payment. What if, you, what if your credit card, what if interest on your credit card debt was bigger than your home mortgage payment, bigger than your grocery budget, you know, bigger than your rent, bigger than your car payments? Uh, that would be an extremely inadvisable position for you to allow yourself to slip into. Mm-hmm. And what you're describing is that that is the situation the country has slipped into, where the interest on our debt is these is is or will soon be the single largest line item in the federal budget. Well, bigger, it, bigger than national defense. Yeah, not bigger than Social Security, I don't think. But okay, yeah, right. but but yeah, it, because, only because those things are off budget. <laughs> so yes, it, it it will be the biggest. And there's another aspect to it, and this is the international aspect. Mm-hmm. When federal when U.S. federal interest rates go up, it tends to make the dollar stronger. And when the dollar stronger compared to other countries, it makes their currency weaker. And then those countries have their own problems because they're they're uh, uh, they're Currency has been has declined based upon yeah. the dollar. Yeah, you don't necessarily you know strong seems like a good thing and weak seems like a bad thing, mm-hmm. but you don't necessarily want the dollar to be extremely strong compared to other countries because it does has it does have impact on trade, mm-hmm. right, and on trade deficits and things like that. Okay, so the, the long and short of this is that we today are in a situation as far as debt and deficits go that was almost unimaginable 20 years ago. Oh, yeah, 10 years ago. No one would have thought that those numbers could get this high and that there would seemingly be no disastrous result, right? And I think what we want to do is sort of explain to our listeners that the real cost of of this out-of-control these out-of-control fiscal issues is the cost of servicing the debt. It's the interest payments on the debt that you have to make. And is it healthy for a country to where the, the biggest line item in the federal budget is interest on debt as opposed to other things? And of course, the answer to that has to be no. Right. And the discouraging thing is that neither party and no prominent elected officials seem to have any inclination whatsoever to address this. Right, right. I mean, the, no one is talking about, I mean, uh, unless, like, like if you've got somebody out there who's, like, so opposed to Ukraine aid, then they'll say, oh, we can't afford this, right? <laughs> but but if it's something they're in favor of, they got no problem whatsoever with it, you now, know? We, we so it's mean- politically selective, but but it's not people looking at the big picture. 
Now, you, you do have someone like Joe Biden who is not talking about cutting spending, but he is talking about raising taxes. Right. And it's conceivable if you raise the right taxes in the right way, you might get more federal revenue. But you don't always necessarily get more federal revenue when you raise taxes. Right. And, and, and it's a really good point because, um, because if you listen to the left, if you listen to Democrats, this is part of their rhetoric is you get the idea that if we simply raise taxes on the wealthy, we could pay for all this stuff. Yes. And, you know, every once in a while, a, a conservative group will do this analysis and they'll say, you know what, if you just if you just confiscated all the wealth, all the wealth of the top one percent or the top half half a percent of taxpayers, you know, it would, it would pay like the, the total federal spending for like three days or something like that. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's ludicrous to think that you can tax your way out of these spending problems. You cannot tax your way out of these spending problems. If you raise taxes, uh, it, it contributes to what we talked about earlier, just kicking the can down the road a little mm-hmm. ways. But you don't solve these problems by raising taxes. The yeah. only way you solve these problems is by reforming this, these spending programs. And sadly, at this juncture in time, nobody seems interested in doing that. And because the CBO is going by what appears to be current law, uh, it would probably actually take law from one of the two presidential candidates who who comes in office plus Congress to actually change law. In mm-hmm. other words, you, it, I'm not sure how much you could save just by coming in saying, I'm going to be a little thriftier. Right. Maybe you could save a little bit, but you probably have to change. When you, say, when you say a little thriftier, it cracks me up that everybody talks about waste, fraud, and abuse, yes. right? I'm sorry. Waste, fraud, cutting waste, fraud, and abuse is just rhetoric. Yep. You're not going to make a dent in our fiscal situation by supposedly addressing waste, fraud, and abuse. Is there waste, fraud, and abuse? Heck yeah. A lot of it. A lot of it. But that's just rhetoric. And so, you know. And, as, and that's past spending. I mean. Yeah, you, right. Exactly. So, you know, as, as, as citizens and as, as, uh, as citizens who have children and grandchildren who are going to grow up in this situation. You look down the road and you think, you know, either either at some point someone's going to man up and try to address this problem, or at some point down the road there is an inevitable disaster lurking. Mm-hmm. Just don't know where. So our goal with today's episode was to really encourage you and cheer you up. Obviously, I'm joking, but I do appreciate you listening to this episode of the Institute for Policy Innovation podcast. This was a sober topic, but it's something that all concerned citizens need to be aware of and concerned about. We would invite you to check out our website at IPI.org and to sign up there if you'd like to receive notices of our new podcast episodes, new content, and upcoming events. If you've enjoyed this podcast, how about giving us a favorable review on iTunes or on your favorite podcast platform? You can also help to sponsor these podcasts by becoming a member of IPI's Giving Society. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time.